reading from Acts. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went from place to place, proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds with one accord listened eagerly eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying with loud shrieks, came out of many who were possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So there was great joy in that city. Now a certain man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was someone great. All of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they listened eagerly to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on, of, laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are, that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have, what you have said may happen to me. Now after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. The word of God for the world. We've been tromping through the book of Acts this summer looking at defining moments in the life of the early church. We've seen their faith and strength in the face of internal and external threat. We've witnessed the miraculous wholeness and healing that they facilitate in the lives of those they encounter. We've watched as they sing joyfully, pray together continuously, give glory to God, and channel the power of God's spirit from prison cell to street corner to widow's home. We've been challenged by their radical unity and care for each other. Miracles, signs, and wonders follow them wherever they go. Today, the scripture gives us another defining moment 
As the followers of Jesus face persecution by their own religious community and come face to face with the Samaritans, a people they have long despised and excluded. Up to now, our story has been confined to Jerusalem where the powerful religious elite, stymied in its attempts to contain the spread of the Christian movement, has employed stronger and stronger tactics to squelch it. But imprisonment proves ineffective. Threats fall on deaf ears. Meanwhile, increasing numbers of people join up. The spin-off Jewish sect that follows a dead rabble-rouser they claim has risen from the dead is disrupted and dangerous. To stop them, the religious authorities resort to covert violence by hiring the devout Jew Saul of Tarsus to do their dirty work. Saul, specializing in arrests, stonings, and all manner of persecution, ruthlessly sets about to rid Jerusalem of the troublesome sect. The result? The sect scatters, dispersing into the surrounding areas, including Samaria, enemy territory. At this point, the plot of the book of Acts resembles a Star Wars opening crawl. (laughs) A long time ago, on a continent far, far away, it is a period of religious upheaval. Rebel Christians striking from the catacombs have won important victories against the evil Jewish religious empire. Pursued by the empire's sinister agent Saul, Philip races off on the nearest camel, custodian of the Christian message of love and hope that can heal not only his own people but the despised and disparaged Samaritan people as well. Philip's message offers the way for freedom and hope to be restored in the land. At this juncture, it's important to look back to Jesus' final departure recorded in Acts 1.8. When they were together for the last time, the disciples asked, Master, are are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? Is this the time? He told them, you don't get to know the time. Timing is God's business. What you'll get is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all over Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the world. Jesus' clear charge as he left them was this. Don't worry about matters that belong to God. You play your part. Humble yourselves. Accept the power God will give you and give witness. Speak the truth of what you experience to anyone, anywhere who will listen. This starts in Jerusalem where you live, but it won't stop there. Judea and Samaria are next and then the world. You tell the story. Leave the rest to me. Current iterations of Christianity distort the meaning of the word witness. Instead of a story about the transforming power of freedom, healing, wholeness, compassion, hope, and love, the story has become a set of beliefs and doctrines about Jesus and a set of do's and don'ts about faith that must be agreed to by anyone wishing to join up. Believe this list and you will be saved. 
That is not what the Christian life is all about. That is not what it means to bear witness. I took a class some years back with Barbara Brown Taylor. More than once in class, she made this statement. Jesus hardly ever said, believe this. Jesus mostly said, follow me. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. These two folks describe what witness really means. Walking hand in hand with Jesus down a dusty road, encountering person after needy person, admitting needs and shortcomings to each other, breaking bread, getting real, getting hands busy doing God's work among the least of these. That's the life about which Jesus called his early followers to bear witness. That's the story they and we are called to tell. The good news of the extraordinary power of God manifest through the ordinary lives of human beings. That's the witness that the Jerusalem power structure cannot stop. In light of Acts 1-8, it should come as no surprise that Philip, on the run from persecution in Jerusalem, lands in Samaria. And what does he do? Cower in fear? Hide out? Keep quiet? Pull a Jonah and refuse to preach to the despised ones? No. <coughs> he bears witness to the good news. And those despised Samaritans listen. They witness his spiritual acts of connection and healing power, and they begin to understand to whom they belong. They sense that this one whose story he tells can meet their spiritual hunger and slake their soul thirst. They drink in the good news of God's love and begin to experience its transforming power. Philip even gains the attention of Simon Magus, a.k.a. the Albus Dumbledore of Samaria. <laughs> Read Harry Potter, you'll know who that is. Called Simon the Great, his magic is known the region over. He has prestige, power, and a huge following because he is the best at mystifying feats and mind-blowing magical displays. Because people flock to see his spectacles. Simon also has, happens to be exceptionally adept at exploiting human insatiability. He knows that people will do almost anything for a thrill, and he makes quite a fortune and develops quite a following by feeding the crowd the thrills they seek and exploiting their insatiable appetite for spectacular magic. Times haven't changed much, have they? We too are easily amazed, seeking thrills because they lift us out of our ordinary existence. Humans possess an insatiable appetite for the spectacular and unexplainable. We're addicted. We get that rush of adrenaline when we skate on the edge of the sleight of hand. And as that initial rush peaks, we crave another rush and then another. But thrills have diminishing returns. Highs wane quickly. And more is required to sustain the high and satisfy the craving. Consider this. The fastest roller coaster in the United States is the Kinga Cup, clocking in at 128 miles per hour. Can't wait. <laughs> 
to the world's fastest, the Formula Rasa in Abu Dhabi, where the top speed of 149.1 miles per hour. Some of you are about to get on the next plane to Abu Dhabi. <laughs> Back in 2000, 14 years ago, the fastest roller coaster in the world was Japan's Steel Dragon with a top speed of a mere 95 miles per hour, a speed that, bre that barely breaks the top 10 now. Now, if that doesn't convince you, ponder this ancient Greek myth about Demeter and King Erysichthon of Thessaly. Because Erysichthon is very hard to pronounce, I'm going to call him Eris, okay? Demeter, the goddess of the harvest, kept a sacred grove of oak trees. One huge oak was covered with votive wreaths, a symbol of every prayer Demeter had granted, and the king's men, fearing reprisals from the goddess, refused to cut that one down. Enraged when his orders were not followed, the king grabbed an axe and cut it down himself, killing a tree nymph in the process. The nymph's dying words were a curse on Eris. Demeter responded to the nymph's curse by entreating Lemus, the spirit of unrelenting and insatiable hunger, to place herself in the king's stomach so that food acted like fuel on a fire. The more he ate, the hungrier he got. King Eris sold all his possessions to buy food, but was still hungry. He sold his daughter Mestra into slavery to make money to feed himself, but no amount of food was ever enough. Eventually, Eris began to consume his own body in order to satisfy his hunger. Insatiability, that unhealthy human appetite for more is as old as civilization itself and can destroy the very things we love the most. If left unchecked, insatiability threatens to eat us alive. However, the wise among us know, as Philip knew, that our appetites and addictions are evidence of a deep spiritual longing in the soul, a longing for home, home with a capital H, you made us for yourself, O oh God, prayed St. Augustine. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let's get back to the story. When Philip arrives on the scene, Simon's world changes. Philip offers that which fills the soul. Living water, satisfying spiritual food, healing for body and soul. Philip bears witness to the freedom and release from human emptiness to which the folks in Samaria had become enslaved. They respond to Philip's message about Jesus, the life giver. They forget Simon and are baptized, becoming believers right and left, as Eugene Peterson says in the message. Simon's sleights of hand are no match for the power of God in satisfying human longing and changing human life. The power of ordinary magic with its thrills and adrenaline rushes gives way to the power of God that provides meaning, liberation, healing, belonging, and purpose. Even Simon the Great is drawn in. The text says he was like Philip's shadow, so fascinated with all the God signs and miracles that he wouldn't leave Philip's side. Was Simon's acceptance of this good news authentic? 
We cannot know for certain. Though Simon was a curiosity seeker himself, he was accustomed to having unequal power over the people. Suffice it to say that the power of God on display in life and deeds of Philip is enough to attract Simon's curiosity, elicit his admiration, and solidify his wary acceptance of power greater than his own. If nothing else, as he later reveals, he wants that same kind of power for himself. Perhaps initially, though, that we follow Jesus is more important than why we follow. The story doesn't end after this initial Samaritan response to the message. Something is lacking. Something more is needed. The apostles from, from Jerusalem are called in to make an assessment and confer a blessing. At Free For All on Tuesday, we discuss what it means for the Jerusalem apostles to lay hands on the Samaritans in order for them to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. No one knows for sure what this ritual involves or what the baptism of the Holy Spirit really means. Scholars have ideas, but nothing more. At Free For All, we talked about three things that might be involved in this ritual. First, the action conveys the power of inclusion and reconciliation. Even Samaritans, the most hated and despised enemies of the Jews, can be part of the body of Christ. No one is excluded. All walls are torn down. If the early Christian movement could include the hated Samaritans, then we too are called to look carefully at our own prejudices. We must ask ourselves who's not welcome? Who's missing here? Who are we being called to love and include? And we must repent of our judgmental exclusiveness. A second Thing this ritual conveys is the spiritual power of personal connection and compassionate human touch. Miraculously, God's power is unleashed when the body of Christ bows heads and joins hands and hearts in service in the world. The healing touch of community is life-giving, caring, humble, able to receive as well as to give. Contrast this with the way human touch is enacted throughout history exploitative, vulgar, profane, cruel. In this ancient story, the Samaritans are being called away from exploitation toward a more excellent way, the way of human connection to a community invested in touching the lives of others with a powerful witness. How are we being called in Hendersonville, North Carolina in 2014 to act in counter-cultural ways to offer the power of life-giving touch to the community in which we live? How do we stand against human exploitation, human trafficking? Will Hendersonville know we are Christians by our law? A third reality conveyed by this ritual is the power of purpose. The laying on of hands is laden with cultural connections to an ancient Jewish worship ritual performed by the priests. Laying one priestly hand on a bird or animal sanctified it for sacrificial offering. But typically when the priest used two hands, they were setting aside human leaders for the work of spiritual leadership in the community. 
as the priest lays his hands on leaders like Moses, Caleb, Joshua, many of the judges, Saul, David, Scripture says the Spirit of God came upon them. When early Jewish leaders are being anointed and set apart, the Spirit of God within them, that force which provides gifts of leadership, wisdom, spiritual power, and strength, is called forth in the ritual laying on of hands. In the New Testament, this practice continues. In Acts 8, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in part, indicates that the ones receiving it begin to understand their purpose in God's kingdom and accept their call to leadership and service. They are free to discover and invest the unique gifts of the Spirit in the work of the body of Christ. This laying on of hands is a symbolic reminding each person that they are gifted by God for work in the kingdom. What better thing to celebrate on Labor Day weekend than this idea that we are all gifted for service and called to minister as the hands and feet, the body of Christ in this world. The Spirit binds us together into the body of Christ, and we are members of it. Have you found your purpose? Do you know your gifts? If you do, are you investing them in meaningful, life-giving ways through this community, for our community? This is a powerful force in the world, this ability to identify, call out, and connect people to their God-given purpose and giftedness. As Simon discovers, this power is not for sale. God's spirit is not a commodity. God's power is the life-giving, spirit-breathing, gift-bestowing energy that enlivens all things. The only way one obtains this power is to respond to the initiative of God's Spirit and to live humbly and intentionally into the transforming connection and purpose for which we are created and to which we are called. Attraction to Philip's miracles and wonders was a way into God's kingdom for the Samaritans. But the way of discipleship in the kingdom of God is not ultimately about superficial response to signs and wonders. Something deeper must occur. Some understanding that this way provides the acceptance, healing, forgiveness, connection, and purpose that our ordinary human lives lack. Some awareness that this way calls us to live compassionately and extend to others the grace we have received. The supernatural nature of the kingdom resides not so much in its signs and wonders as in its powers of inclusion, connection, and purpose. In its grace to us. In its calling beyond us. We must submit to the Spirit's transformation from the inside out. Magic fuels an appetite for the spectacular. Meaning fills us up spiritually. Meaning is found in that reality beyond real seeking. Where the power of God is known in our deepest hearts. Where we recognize to whom we belong. 
where we are set solidly on the path of transformation toward becoming who we are created and called by God to be. The power of magic thrills us. The power of divine meaning saves us, fills our emptiness, makes us whole. This power cannot be bought or earned. This power is pure grace. Thanks be to God. That's good news. So bear witness. 